make JD happy. No, make me coffee. Pseudo, <laughs> make me coffee. Make me coffee. <laughs> I, I, yes, I need more coffee too. <laughs> Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. Welcome to the Mac DevOps podcast. Today I'm joined by my amazing, strong, I mean, JD. JD, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, Matt. How are you doing? I need more coffee. Pseudo, make me a coffee? Pseudo uh, can't get across the border. <laughs> I don't think the border's open yet. No. Um, <laughs> yes. So we close. So close. Soon, very soon. Soon we'll be able to meet in person again, I hope, in real life conferences. Uh, one day soon, JD. I look forward to Cardam's donuts. Yes, donuts and people too, right? And people. Well, yes. Donuts first, coffee okay. second, people third. Awesome. Well, today we're joined by a very, very cool and exciting guest, Sophie. How's it going? Good. Good. Having a good day. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast. As we meet new people in this uh, world, it's usually on Twitter for me. Thanks so much for joining us. It was great of you to comment on stuff in public in on Twitter about SRE. And I just thought, you know, it'd be so much more fun to talk a little bit longer with you about uh, Google SRE and all that kind of good stuff that we're trying to f get into and figure out here in the Mac DevOps world. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should start from the beginning of the story. Um, maybe introduce yourself. Sure. I started out doing, um, like I started learning more sysadmin stuff uh, because I just had to switch to Linux because Windows was too slow for my computer. Um, and then ended up getting a gig as a, um, as a Rails dev, but I was doing all the admin stuff and progressively moved my way further and further behind the scenes until I was doing SRE for source control stuff while I was at Google. So quite behind the scenes in that case. Nice. That's the short and sweet of it. So you were, you were saying Rails. So you were in the, the exciting wave of Ruby, uh, Ruby on Rails and that whole uh, scene? Yeah, I was, uh, I was back in like Rails 2. Rails 2, Rails 3. So that was, that was a while ago. 2010, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can still remember the excited look on uh, some of my friends' faces when they when they were talking to me about Ruby and Ruby on Rails and and uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, other than Mac Mac fans, you know, which some of us are, uh, you know, I've never seen that really excited face on some people uh, before. So uh, the promise of Rails is it? People are still using Ruby on Rails and Ruby or Rails and I know of shops still using it today. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty standard thing. I mean. I don't know that it's dominant, but it's still there's still plenty of places using it. Yeah, we have the uh, Ruby uh, and Rails folks. We got the Python, and uh, you know we got all these different communities that make up uh, mm -hmm. these, this uh, uh, programming language world. Um, so 
working with Rails got you into managing or admitting you said the systems and Yeah. Yeah, it was early EC2 days, so we just had a VPS, and we had to do the rest ourselves, kind of. Nice. And you find that really exciting work, uh, just trying to learn and dig into it? or Yeah, it was, it was nice to be really comprehensively full stack. Like, that's something that has changed in scale of what it means with time, and necessarily so. But it was it was a special sort of fun to be like setting up the mail servers and the HTTP server and like all of that stuff, as well as like doing CSS and the the business logic and all that. That was that was fun for a time. Yeah, you mentioned mail server. Uh, that 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 can be fun and exciting, and also nerve wracking and stressful. Yes, no- yes, we didn't have to do the full outbound because. Uh, SendGrid was around at that point, so. Nice. Yeah, but there was still a lot of nerve-wrackingness around it, yes. <laughs> and so were a lot of people dependent on the services that you were running at that time, or did that grow? Uh, at that point, it was something like 30,000 monthly active. That uh, was for Extra Math, uh, which is a times table arithmetic, etc. practice app for elementary school students. No, nothing like the stress of actual users using the product when services, did they ever go down? <laughs> we, didn't ha- we didn't have too many bad outage problems, no. It was a relatively simple app. Like that was first thing I was running. Yeah, I, there, there wasn't a lot in the way of reliability concern. Except in so much as like high latency becomes unavailability. We did have latency issues that we had to concern consider. And I don't know if we'd if we'd actually made it out to talk to users, which is really the right way to do it. Maybe we would have found that our experience wasn't actually acceptable, but from what we could observe on the server side, it was decent seeming. And were you working as part of a big team or was it? No, no, it was um, this nonprofit that um, a guy met at a makerspace out there had started and um, he couldn't uh, keep up all the typing for the coding himself anymore because um, just RSI stuff. So he hired me to take that part over and he still directed the overall operations and the architecture and stuff. So that was my way to sneak into the tech world nice. without any credentials. <laughs> yeah, we, I guess life gives us some opportunities and we got to jump through those uh, open windows or doors or whatever, whatever the metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there was a lot of hard work on your part, you know, trying to figure out systems and learn. And Yeah, I was... I mean, I was unfortunately part of the generation where there was a lot of uh, RTFM, uh, whatnot, nonsense when you'd go into IRC and, you know, ask a question. And it's not very helpful to be told to, like, go and look your question up when you have just come to ask a question. But... That was the state of the community then, and yeah. So 
one did a lot of that because you had to. <laughs> I'm glad we've moved on in ways and become a kinder culture with things like Stack Exchange. And well, not that that's amazing, but <laughs> it's certainly better. Yeah, it seems like it's a, a graveyard of answers and questions, uh, sometimes very active, but sometimes you're not sure you're picking through it. Yeah. It's better than Pound Linux on on Freenode was in the 90s. Just having the ability to search the interwebs, I think, is a is a great boon versus Gopher or or yeah, any of the <laughs> any of the the IRC boards back in the day. Yes. Yeah, Gopher. Uh, for those who don't know, it was like a series of ten ten uh, options and going to the next screen with ten options, and that would pre presuppose that someone had organized the data that existed, and then you could jump from one place to another. But yeah, crawling the entire known universe of interwebs and then cataloging it—you know—there was a lot of search engines before Google, but Google seemed to have won that more or less search engine war. Being able to Google things is definitely a skill these days. And if, like library research of old, uh, being able to evaluate your uh, your responses and the, the the data you find is also another skill. Mm -hmm. So you you were uh, in this uh, working at uh, on the infrastructure for this app, and at some point, yeah. uh, you jumped to what was your next big jump? Oh well, the the next few weren't really so like they weren't so big one at a time. So let's see, the next place was just, we did telecom-based advertising stuff, which is really confusing to describe the business model of, so you know, let's not get into it. Um, but that was uh, a weird Perl and Java and the IP infrastructure team. And then I went back to Rails work for a minute and... After that, I was at Udacity, where I tried to sort of throw together an SRE org based on what I could glean from the books available at that point. But there were many missteps um, in that process. I, I think I, I learned a lot more by mistake than by doing things the right way in that experience. So yeah, I guess that would be the next really big shift was when I was at Udacity trying to like figure out, you know, how do we do SRE in this somewhat small org context? Because we had maybe 20 engineers on the product, uh, but we had enough complexity that we had to start considering some kind of dedicated ops of some sort. And I'd seen how older school ops approaches really burnt people out and whatnot, and I didn't want to just do that exactly. Yeah, so I guess that would that was the next big shift, yeah. So what, what were you hoping that SRE or the change from old ops to new ops would do uh, for your company, the company at the time? Like, what were you hoping to, to change, like job, uh, the way people were sharing their jobs or the way that uh, the whole team worked, or what did you see? Yeah, so... I see DevOps and SRE as uh, it's, it, it depends on who you're asking as to which is which, of course. My experience with how I was introduced to the terms was that DevOps is the more like mixing the operations into the engineering team and more of a cult, more of a actively framed as a cultural shift thing. 
Whereas SRE is sort of putting a band-aid on traditional ops. Um, and it's a, it's quite a comprehensive band-aid, I think. Um, it's, it's a good one. Uh, SRE is, I think, better than your traditional ops setup, but it's basically having certain social checks and balances in the organizational structure such that operations can't get too deeply deprioritized. And so I, having considered that uh, in our context, I knew like the DevOps thing is everybody wants to learn about it. Like people have to want to learn about it and be aware of it. And people did not want to learn about it in the context of our company. We really wanted to like, the people on our teams wanted to ship features. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And we were on a, uh, a platform as a service at that time for a lot of our load too. So they were afforded a lot of uh, flexibility in that way because of that. So it seemed the SRE would be right in that we'd be able to concentrate the knowledge. And it seemed right in terms of just being a better organizational approach in that like there's release gating based on like have you used up your air budget for whatever the window is that was one of the key principles of ben trainers um what's that talk uh the keys to sre uh which was one of the first things that got me into sre uh as that name nice yeah well, recently, um, I, I was, I mean, we did a DevOps for Dummies uh, book club last year to help some mm -hmm. of the DevOps, uh, you know, um, enthusiastic in our, in our crowd. And of course, by naming our conference Mac DevOps, I was kind of influenced by the DevOps community. And I just liked how they, like, it was kind of like a culture shift and people coming together yeah. and people seeming very enthusiastic and, you know, get it done, work together. Everybody's, you know, happy, haha. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so for Mac DevOps, I just said, hey, for those of us who are IT or engineers or sometimes part-time software developers, and we're coming together and we're trying to, you know, build infrastructure as code. And so um, I was hoping that we could mesh all these possibilities, but we oh, looked yeah. at and there's a lot there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there is. And I don't, I don't think that the, the distinctions between the two are actually meaningful in any fast way, like rigid and fast way. Like right. they, they just tend to point at different things because of where they've been used historically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we we just sort of jumped into Emily Freeman's book because it just it was just written in such an accessible way and it's friendly and Emily is awesome and and uh, so we had fun looking at that and then slowly I, I started looking at the sort of SRE stuff that I guess Google published at the, a, a couple of books or resources and mm -hmm. it just seemed like maybe. You know, uh, I was, we we're going to start a book club just looking at some of the SRE material from Google to, to study that a little bit. And, and just from my very initial looking at what SREs are, say, compared to the big picture of DevOps, but SRE seems to be like, maybe you don't have all the political power to control the, the dev side or, and you're, you know, a, a fancier ops department. Um, but, you know, I haven't dug into it. You know, I'm just... I'm just getting into the whole uh, SRE thing myself, uh, working with a, a new a team of people around the world on server infrastructure around the world too. So just trying to figure out 
how to build those teams and how to work together and how to, you know, work with the people that are producing the code to deploy and deliver and <laughs> maintain and observe and, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. there's, a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. I think what SRE means really varies a lot and it varied a lot even within Google. Like there was the, the very um, kind of formulaic version of it espoused in trainers, the keys to SRE talk. And you would see that in some cases implemented within Google. And you would also see things that were quite substantially different from it, but still effective in a lot of teams. Yeah, I think it's, it's very flexible what it can be. Right. Yeah. And re it being a uh, like a sort of a, a healthier ops, yes, it, it very much can be that. That absolutely can be a thing, or it can be a far more integrated and collaborative thing, with a lot more um, governance control from the SRE, like a lot of control over feature development and whatnot, even of uh, the underlying services. So it can, it can really go either way. It depends on how a team chooses to approach it. And and you mentioned like one thing, you know, uh, the error budget. So how would that work? Mm-hmm. Well, that's again, something that can vary quite a lot. The nominal, like very rough idea is that you have some um, window of time for which let's say it's a month. That's a, an easy period to reason about and you know that you um like you budgeted slo wise for well it's inverting how you look at your slo sort of it's taking your slo is the time that you have to be up which means that you have budgeted for a certain amount of failure and so you can have a max of a certain duration or a certain number of requests etc of failure. And this depends on how request load is distributed and other things. So you can basically say, okay, if we use this, if we have this many failures in whatever sense you measure them for your SLO, then we're not going to change anything for the rest of the time because change is the most likely cause of more failures. It seems like um, the, the acronyms in the acronym soup, um, these are ways to allow the back end and the team to sympathize and pretend that they know that the people in front, that the users of the system, you know, need some kind of stability. It's kind of a way to imagine that there's actually real users. So you were mentioning like SLO, yeah. I guess, the service level objective, and then mm-hmm. you would kind of measure them with SLIs, service level indicators. So you have to somehow measure... Yeah. With the measure stuff. <laughs> well, measurement and SLOs and SLIs are one approach. I think there's good reason, and there's a lot of literature on that. There's good reason to be a little cautious about just jumping on the SLO bandwagon because software correctness is fundamentally, I believe, a, uh, a wicked problem. In, uh, the, in a jargon sense, which I'll explain to the best of my ability what that jargon means. But it's a problem where there is no agreement on either 
the definition of the problem or the nature of a solution and such any, such that any attempt to define either a solution or a definition to the problem is seen as a political maneuver of a sort to get your values, like, to win out. And this is necessary because what we do is we solve social needs. And so fundamentally, there will be disagreements between different parties as to what is the correct behavior. And if you're not really asking that question, if you're not thinking about it from the perspective of like, what is correct to who and for what purpose, then it's easy to make an SLO that makes you feel like you're doing something without actually mitigating harm or improving reliability or usability or anything like that. So I think, I think it's just important to be careful to do both the, the philosophical and the emotional labor involved in understanding what those measurements mean. Like, what, what pain does it mean to whom? Or, like, why does this kind of failure care, matter? Like, what is the value we assign to that? And for what ethical reason, etc.? Yeah. Listeners in podcast land can't see, but I'm nodding my head and I'm just like, this is very, very important stuff to discuss amongst our teams and amongst the different organizations. And um, keeping, you know, your app or your server and your services up is important, but we have to also not do harm to the people keeping the services running. How do we, how do we uh, keep our, uh, our SREs, our IT people, our people happy and healthy and alive? <laughs> Yeah, secondary trauma is very, very real. From keeping the systems alive. <laughs> yes. But also just like you have to talk to the actual end users as well. And like this is, there is good research on this. Um, the name of the book, uh, Nicole Forsgren is um, the author I remember primarily. There's a couple other big names involved in that book too, but I can't remember who they are top of my head. But there's work that has been done on basically like taking a, a sort of organizational psychology approach to how do we do operations well. And one of the fundamental conclusions at the end of their book was that you can't just operationalize things as like requests that have failed or amount of downtime, etc. You will always fundamentally miss things measurement-wise if you do that. You have to do end-user survey. And I would generalize that to say that it can't just be end-user survey, but like everyone who's involved along various parts of the process. One of the earlier parts in that book effectively led to me recommending to a client that we actually not work on an SLO and we not develop an SLO for them yet because having a learning culture and having substantial psychological safety is so important. You have to have that before numbers are healthy. Right. Like before you measure whether the thing 
is up or down, you have to have a culture where that measurement can do something useful that isn't just stressing people out inside the company for no really good reason. It's it's not often talked about the emotional, physical toil of the uh, you know workers, the tech workers in this case, behind the scenes, keeping mm-hmm. servers and services up and we hear about pager duty as a service, uh, but also kind of as a as a harm done to people if you're getting paged at all times uh, or getting uh, if you're on call for a long time responsible. And that can be very nerve wracking and stressful. <laughs> Just receiving a notification is stressful and all levels. You don't have a playbook so that people know what to do with that page and when they can give up what the extent of their obligation is who they can escalate to if there isn't a meaningful option for escalation etc yeah there's there's a lot of ways that can go bad. yeah going back to the book uh, you were mentioning it was uh, by N- nicole forsgren I, n- I know i've seen her online i think was it the accelerate the science of devops yes that's the book yeah yeah she- Definitely need to uh, read that book. Uh, thanks for recommending it or mentioning it. It's amazing. It's probably the best book I've seen in the... No, it's it's the best. It's the best book I've seen in this area in a long time. Nice. Continuing on with your story, you went to, you went to, to Google eventually and became an SRE. Yeah. How, how was that different than your other places that you worked? Well, I mean... I was joining an established ops org, like Google invented SRE. It was all very, very much easier in a lot of ways. I found myself having substantially lower stress over orders of magnitude, more data because of, or load or whatnot, just because our infrastructure was nicer. And that was convenient. It was really (laughs) nice. But then also the... The nature of the work changes. So like one thing I noted with at least the first half of my time at Google is uh, I just really didn't code. It was a lot of it was design docs and meetings and whatnot. And it was very interesting, high level thinking, but there was a lot less coding than I thought there would be. And that varies team to team and SRE to SRE and whatnot. but. That was my experience for the first half. The second half, I was on an SRE product team, so it was all coding regardless. It was interesting to get to talk with other people about things on a more conceptual level who had also considered them on a conceptual level, like being part of working groups and things. Nice. It really... It gave me a lot of chance to like deepen my thinking about a lot of this stuff. And there was a, yeah, there was a com- community. There was a, pe- a lot of yeah. people that were yeah. There was substantial community. I mean, just for the org I was in, I don't know. Probably it was definitely tens of SREs. I don't think we were eh, maybe across sites. We were a hundred. But yeah, so there was there were a lot of different people to rely on and learn from, and you didn't have to be on call all the time. You didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So that was nice. I got to relax and focus on lower level, like how to do the work better, rather than 
just being burned out by it all the time. Nice. Yeah. Is there anything you think that uh, other orgs or small shops or smaller places other than, you know, Google size can learn from SRE or, or DevOps or? There's a lot, but I think it's not, it's not what anyone wants to think. The big thing you can learn from SRE generally is like, if you're small, you don't need it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just don't. Like, the, the SRE model is basically conditioned on the idea of multiple sites and a follow the sun rotation. So if you're thinking less than like 10 to 20 people, you're probably not actually thinking SRE in terms of just how that model has typically been instituted at other places. But that doesn't mean that there's not things to learn from it. SRE is in one way about building Slack in. You know, I'm, I'm not just uh, selflessly interested. I'm selfishly interested in how to get teams across the world to work together across time zones. Mm-hmm. That's new for me and uh, working together. And, you know, you can't talk to people face to face. You can't always talk to people in the same time zone because your time zones are not really overlapping. So you have to use Slack yeah, and yeah. documentation and a combination of pr- best practices. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an art mm. and a science. <laughs> and I uh, Oh, I'm, when I said Slack, I meant oh. building Slack in. I meant building like you need to have oh, extra like space a, in ah, the day. Oh. Yes. Yes. I don't mean the chat service. The actual tool. <laughs> yeah. What? I do not mean that. No. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fine. You can use it. Uh, I'm not endorsing or disendorsing there. I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, so one of the key ideas of the, uh, one of the, the keys in the keys to SRE is that you can only have one incident you respond to in a day because once you've gotten a page, it will take you about the rest of the day to do the root cause analysis and fix it. So that's the kind of thing I would try to learn from is that if you try to just put out the current fire, you will end up in a bad spot. But the more you can do root cause fixes and root cause analysis, the more things work. Right. And the more you can overskill or oversimplify, and by overskill, I mean have more than enough people aware of how to do a thing and oversimplify, just, you know, make your processes or architecture simpler, then the easier it is to get these things kind of for free. Gotcha. Definitely some good takeaways from this. I really appreciate you uh, sharing some of your hard-won knowledge uh, and experience with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. How are you doing these days? Are you uh, are you a reformed SRE? Are you a recovering DevOps? Are you uh, mm. what, what's keeping you busy or uh, making you happy? Or yeah, um, I'm just trying to figure out what is. So I've, I'm really interested in infrastructure work. I care about it deeply, mostly because I feel like it can be better and it can serve humans better. And why shouldn't it? (laughs) Really, it's that simple. (laughs) Um, And so I'm thinking about how I can still keep that focus and 
feel happy about the way I'm doing my work. I don't feel that the SRE model is the way I want to be working anymore. I don't think that, like, not there's anything wrong with DevOps as a movement. It's like that's too aligned with typical employment. So I'm I'm figuring out like how how do I do infrastructure in a new way that feels comfy to me because I'm just not happy with the way we've structured our infrastructure as a society. It's too centralized and too proprietary and you mean sort of like an extension of the software is code and we're all shoving everything into Amazon or Google or some and then we're locked into a certain vendor's cloud or yeah um or not so specific but you're thinking bigger Yeah picture. some I mean I mean some of that I mean some of that for sure I think I mean more generally as well it stands out to me that if you want to have a like just a crash tolerant file system that is an inordinately hard problem these days. These kinds of things and these kinds of, like this kind of infrastructure exists in various ways in a bunch of different big tech companies. But the only way you get it outside of a big tech company is you either put a lot, a lot, a lot of extra work in or you pay that big tech company to rent their version of it. And... I think that like when uh, Bell Labs was no more and Unix got split up all the different ways and we ended up with the Linux world, like I think we'll see a lot more valuable value once these ideas aren't tied to particular for-profit entities because it's such basic stuff. Like just, just having a good distributed file system shouldn't be something you have to rent. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. We have this whole another direction of discussion or talk about open source and you know certain companies sponsor open source projects because they are using them, you know, they provide value to them, but other times, you know, we're we're stuck with an open source not stuck, but using an open source version of something that we have to support ourselves like I don't know, maybe, you know, we're so many examples of different software products where you can pay for support and get an enterprise version, or you, you can use this open source version, you know, in my air quotes, or that you, you can use yourself, but you have to put in your engineers and you have to figure it out and you have to search yeah. for them. I think that's because we've decided to accept that as the status quo. Like each founder who chose to go along with investors who would want that, helped create this landscape that we're in and vice versa. We could do different, right? Mm -hmm. Like have more foundations or there's, there's co-ops. I think co-ops are great. I think that's a good way to go with a lot of this stuff. What's an example of an existing co-op for this kind of stuff. I am not aware of a particular one. There are tech worker co-ops there are some tech platform co-ops. Uh, so there's, I think they're still called the Drivers Cooperative. They may have changed names. They are a rideshare app here in New York City that's all co-op based. So like, I don't see why we couldn't have customers as one class of stakeholder and the people maintaining the stuff as another class. Right. And we can just we can decide that we're going to 
support these things. Yeah. We can decide this as an industry, but we have to collectively decide it. Yeah. And the Mac admins community writ large has decided to become like some kind of psychological bomb shelter for people to come together, band together in Mac DevOps. I've tried to help get people who are writing open source software or software they're writing and putting out into the open source. Their people are building tools and people are coming together to try and help themselves help help themselves do the job, which is, say, deploying, uh, building infrastructure to deploy Macs usually for the Mac admins. But, you know, we sometimes people end up just going into pure DevOps or they just go and end up just the building and maintaining infrastructure. And so, like you said, we can build the community we want. We just have to really want it and try. And I think we can build better models. I mean, that's why we do Mac DevOps and other people have other conferences and try to get people in the community to come together. And we can't lose hope and we can't just abdicate to all these big companies. Uh, mm -hmm. Now we're getting political, but yes, change the world. You can do it. <laughs> we can be a part of this change. So this is uh, we could talk forever and I don't want to take a whole day, Sophie. This is awesome. Um, I love you sharing your, your thoughts on this. Yeah, no problem. Definitely a, a deep topic. I love talking about these things. And uh, thanks for uh, yeah. coming on the Mac DevOps podcast to talk to us a bit about this. Sophie, how do we find you on the interwebs? The best place is just my Twitter. My Twitter, yeah. So it's uh, heartpunk, unfortunately, with two Ks at the end because you can't get the, the one with only one. But uh, that's heart, the word, and then punk. Awesome. It's a great, uh, great handle, Heart Punk. I love it. Thank you so much, Sophie. And uh, thank you, Sophie, for your yeah. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see you on the interwebs on Twitter and mm -hmm. uh, keep on rocketing in the free world. Yep. The Mac DevOps YVR conference and podcast is looking for sponsors. Support and encourage developers in IT to work together to solve problems for our community by sponsoring Mac DevOps. If you're interested in sponsoring the Mac DevOps YVR conference and podcast, send an email to hello at mdoyvr.com. Thank you to our awesome Mac DevOps sponsors. For the 2021 Mac DevOps conference, we would like to thank Mac Stadium, our platinum sponsor. We're also grateful for Mac Stadium's sponsorship of our hack night. Thank you, Mac Stadium. Visit them at macstadium.com. Our gold sponsor is Flow Swiss AG with their Mac Bare Metal instance. Thank you, Flow Swiss AG. Visit them at flow.swiss/mac-bare-metal. Thank you to our silver sponsor, Simple MDM. Visit them at simplemdm.com. Thank you to our bronze sponsor, Teradici. Visit them at teradici.com. Our live feed is sponsored by Fleet DM. Visit them at fleetdm.com. And this year, our MDM panel is sponsored by Adagy. Visit them at adagy.com. Please take a moment to visit all of our sponsors. We could not hold Mac DevOps YVR without the support of our sponsors. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to our co-hosts. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. Well, and you're Canadian, so you pronounce things weird. I do. ZZ Top.